Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello again, or maybe hello for the first time. But either way, welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask people to choose five things from their life that they would like to have preserved in a time capsule. They can pick anything from any time in their life, but they have to pick four things that they cherish and one that they wish they could forget forever, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the fourth member of my favourite comedy of all time, The League of Gentlemen. And if you only know Mark Gatiss, Steve Pemberton and Rhys Shearsmith, then I'm delighted to introduce you to the one you never see, Jeremy Dyson. Together, they have won British Academy Awards, Royal Television Society Awards and the Golden Rose of Montreux. Jeremy also created the play Ghost Stories with his friend Andy Nyman and the BAFTA-nominated TV series Funland with Simon Ashdown. He worked as a script editor on The Armstrong and Miller Show, Tracy Ullman Show and Simon Amstel's Grandma's House, amongst others. He adapted Roald Dahl's Twisted Tales for the stage and directed a film adaptation of Ghost Stories. Jeremy has written several books and two collections of short stories entitled Never Trust a Rabbit and The Cranes That Build the Cranes. Now look, straight off, I'm going to admit that I am an enormous fan of Jeremy's work, so I was very excited to talk to him about the five things he'd choose to put in a time capsule. And when I'd finished, I was not only a fan of his work, but of the man as well. I hope you will be too. Here is the delightful Jeremy Dyson. My little granddaughter the other day, just without any prompting at all, my daughter came in and found that my granddaughter had written a letter to Ukraine saying, Dear Ukraine, I'm really sorry to hear you're having such a horrible time. I hope you survive. Love, Edie. Yeah, when uh, my kids, we took them on a trip to London quite a few years ago when they were little. Uh, they hadn't been that often. And um, there were lots of homeless people, which they're not used to seeing up where we are in Ilkley. And it was a real shock for them. Mm. And when we got back home, unbidden, they both asked if they could write a letter to the Prime Minister. <laughs> and they did. They wrote a letter saying how sad it was and couldn't they do anything to help. Mm. And I will say, despite the fact it was David Cameron in office at the time, they got a reply. Brilliant. What did it say? Mind your own business, you silly northerner. <laughs> Stop coming down here and trying to take our money. Yes, but that, you're right. Kids are extraordinary and, and they're little people, you know. Yeah. I mean, far deeper. They think much more than we mm. do. Well, I can remember. It doesn't seem that long ago, you know. No. No, it's funny. It's funny the people who can't remember being a child. You do come across people who you see them talking to children and, and you think, 
do you not remember being a child? Because you're you're talking to them as if they're your bank manager. But then it's probably to do with how you were spoken to and, you know, mm. particularly by your parents and all those variables. It's very, yeah, compli- yeah. It's very complicated, isn't it? Yes, because a lot of people just, in a way, throw away their youth because they had such a miserable time. I know. And yeah. It's one of the things that's never talked about politically, but the, the huge difference, I would call it the love economy, if you could put those two words together, you know, that the huge difference it makes to an individual's life, mm. just that, that's completely separate from resources, from, you know, material resources. I mean, assuming basic needs are covered in terms of, attention and love and and you know that's what what it unlocks yeah or what it keeps locked up if you didn't have your requisite amount you know yes it's funny isn't it we constantly judge the worth of someone by qualifications and earnings and it's it's not really the way to judge things is it oh no i was i was very lucky i had it starkly laid out for me because one set of grandparents were reasonably well off and on the other side they weren't poor but they were there was a noticeable difference. And yet it was the more modest of the two who was the one you always wanted to be with because she was just, she just exuded love mm. and care and wanted to speak to you and have you sit on her lap. And, and um, she was the wealthiest woman I know. She lived to 106. She died um, two years ago. And it was the thing that everybody said at her memorial was, you know, she was just a kind of walking embodiment of, of love and she was the most adored woman and she just had this extraordinary life which wasn't about material achievement wasn't about traveling the world Mm. it was just about how everyone felt about her (laughs) and and also how the richness that she got from all that simplicity you know so yeah i kind of cottoned onto that quite early yeah, given the example of it, I suppose, absolutely. Yeah. And so many children are given the example of pull yourself together, you know, stiff up a lip. What's the matter with you? Come on, grow up. Yes. And achieve, come on. Let's beat these people. Yes. So the whole thing for them is a competition all the time. Well, we'll come on to that because that touches on one of my uh, objects. Oh, does it? How brilliant. In fact, positive and negative. Right. It's very nice of you to do this, Jeremy. It really is. Oh, no, Thank it's you. a pleasure. It's a lovely thing to do. And I'm not a massive podcast person but um, in terms of listening, but this is one that inevitably, because there's such a wonderful variety of people on it, that it's a joy to listen to. I had no idea what it would be, this thing, when I started. In a way, I suppose I expected it to be, oh, it would be show busy, entertaining and a bit witty, you know, people being funny with each other. But it's not turned into that at all. It's actually turned into something really... Well, gentle, actually. Gentle but deep, which is what's lovely. Uh, You know, and people really reveal a lot, don't they? Really surprisingly. Well, you're a great interviewer, that's why. (laughs) It's because you relax them and, you know, just gently nudge. I hope so, but I'm not sure where that comes from. It's not a skill that I've been aware of in my life. It's to do with listening. That's why Parky was always the best, because he was one of the few that listened. The, the massive difference between Parky and Wogan was Wogan never listened, but Parky listened and adjusted. And at his best, I mean, brilliant, going down avenues that you'd never imagine. Yes, some of those are fantastic, aren't they? Aren't they, just- And also the generosity of, like, having Billy Connolly on. That great story about how it was all from getting in a taxi in Glasgow and... The taxi driver said, oh, you should you should have Billy Connolly on your show. Who's Billy Connolly? And the taxi driver stopped and went into a shop and bought him a record. And Parkinson then took it home, listened to it, and was sold. God, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know. I, I was, I was um, Douglas McKinnon, director, told me that last, last, the other week. What an amazing thing. Yeah. All right, well, I won't keep you all afternoon. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so we shall talk about things that you want to put into a time capsule and see where we go. Yes, well, it's a, of course, it's a fun thing to do, isn't it? To sort of sit down and imagine where you would go. And actually, some of these things I've, I've actually got in front of me. Not oh. I haven't deliberately put them in front of me, but I'm sat in my office now in my uh, writer's shed, which is at the bottom of the garden. And I, you know, I, I try to keep sort of inspirational things or things that have meaning around me. And so, uh, in fact, the very first thing I'm going to talk about is up here in front of me. But uh, to go into what it is, we have to cast our mind back to... Um, spring half term in 1974 and uh, I was seven and the Doctor Who exhibition the first one had just opened in Blackpool and I think I'd been begging my parents could we go could we go Mm. and so we had a five days holiday in Blackpool 
which was not where my mother in particular would have wanted to go by choice. Not that she was a snobby person, but, um, you know, she just preferred foreign holidays. We went with our next door neighbours, the Brooks, in a little B&B. We stayed uh, in St Anne's, I think. So maybe that was the nod towards, because uh, that's the posher end of Blackpool, St Anne's. <laughs> so off we went to the, the Doctor Who exhibition which was halfway along the Golden Mile. And I, you know, I was in a state of extreme excitement, being already a big fan. And you entered through a TARDIS. It was a mocked-up TARDIS, and that actually led you down into a basement. You went some steps down inside. And so I stood at the top, about to go in, and at the bottom, round the corner, out of sight, I just heard, exterminate. <laughs> and that was it. I couldn't go in. I was too frightened. I was frozen with fear. And it was, you know, an awful thing because I wanted more than anything else to go in, but could not overcome the fear that I would have to see a Dalek. So I, my dad waited with me outside and uh, while my brother and my mum went round. And um, this is a very long preamble, but we haven't even got close to the, to the thing yet. <laughs> but, um, no, it's so. funny. It's an extraordinary thing that to have to do that as a parent, when you know how much your child would just love to be in there. You know how brilliant it would be for them if they could just get over that barrier, and they can't. And you have no. to you have to accept it. You can't make them. No, and I, you know, kind of learned that with my own children as well. Mm. Um, that where that line is, and and yeah, you can cajole, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, you can't force. It doesn't feel right to do that. I mean, I I went back not so long. You know, I think probably the next visit to Blackpool, I was that bit older and yeah. and able to go, but. Um, but anyway, as compensation for this not working out, I was taken to the joke shop on the North Pier, which is no longer there. And it was actually um, it was in a sort of parade of shops halfway along, a little parade on the pier. Now, joke shops were quite naughty. There was a joke shop in Leeds that I can remember walking past around that age and I would not have been allowed in. But it was decided that there would be a reward for me, you know, um, to just make up for this spoilt visit. And when I went in, it was it was an epiphany. For me, it was the equivalent of walking into the Sistine Chapel, really, and gazing at the ceiling <laughs> and just seeing... I mean, because the thing about joke shops, which they don't really have now, and there's very few left, there used to be a lot more when I was young, is how packed they are with stuff. You know, the window is packed with stuff. Yeah. And then when you go inside, it's, you know, every inch of wall space has, like, little bags with noses and there's magic tricks in there as well Mm. often and I could have been a week in there and I wouldn't have tired but on the counter there were two items and there was a coffin bank I now know is what they're called which is a little tin I think the the later ones were plastic but this was tin and a sort of coffin black coffin with Mm. fabric top and you would put your 2p or your 10p onto this little nipple and out would come a green hand and it snatched the 2p in and yes. um, i so wanted that until i saw the next item which was a little plastic model of an outside toilet um, <laughs> and when you opened the door there was a man inside and you could see it because it was kind of like a saloon door you know and you opened it inside and he turned around and he weed on you <laughs> Well, this was about the most perfect thing I had ever seen. I couldn't believe that such a thing could exist. And I begged (laughs) to have the outhouse. It was called the outhouse. But I I wasn't allowed because it was deemed too vulgar. Right. And We've demeaned ourselves by bringing ourselves (laughs) to Blackpool. We're not going that far. We're not going all the way down to the bottom and (laughs) taking that home with me. So, yes, I got a dippy duck instead. We used to a little thing with sort of liquid in the bottom and it would uh, a burn. Which are brilliant, aren't they? Yes. I mean, that's uh, a great gift to get. It just keeps going. Yes, it seems like a perpetual motion machine, doesn't yeah. it? But um, so the outhouse then passed into my personal myth, really, yeah. because I, I started to wonder if I'd dreamt it because I'd never seen it anywhere again. Was it a one-off? Was it a handmade item, perhaps, just especially for the joke shop on the North Pier? The joke shop on the North Pier went not long after that. So the next time I went back to Blackpool, it was no longer there, which was devastating. 
Mm. And so it was. It drifted further and further into the past and became this this sort of idealized item. And I can, I, you know, I wrote a few things that sort of featured versions of it over the years. Anyway, I was I told Andy Nyman about it. Andy Nyman, a uh, wonderful actor and writer mm. who I collaborate with, and he laughed hysterically at <laughs> just the mere idea of the art house. And we get we are in the habit of buying each other Christmas presents and birthday presents. And it just so happened about four years ago, he presented me with a wrapped up item and he just said, I think you're going to like this. And I opened it, boxed in its box, the outhouse. I guess he'd found it on eBay, but I could not believe it. I'm going to show you. Yes, please. Sh- show you. Right, it's, uh, here's the box. Oh. And here, I know that this is an audio-only podcast, but just for your eyes, here he is. There he is. The little man. And that's what happens. <laughs> oh, no, I've just weed all he over my laptop. You don't have your computer. <laughs> that was the whole thing explodes. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you know, I recognise it. In my yeah. head somewhere, I've seen it somewhere, definitely. Well, it, it was a thing, these kind of rude novelty items, because later, you know, I, in life, you know, we went into other joke shops and there was a whole, there was a thing. There was a rude monk that you sort of squeezed it and and his willy popped out. Oh, and yes. You're allowed to say that. And, you know, it was, it was definitely a thing, sort of naughty toys. I think if you do that with any monk, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, and I, anyway, I, I keep the outhouse now. God bless Andy Nyman, mm. because I, I really didn't, know whether i dreamt it or not so to actually be presented with it after 40 years or whatever it was was extraordinary i love the fact that it's stayed in your head all through your career as it were there's a league of gentlemen sketch with the dentons the character that steve played harvey denton where he drinks a glass of his own urine. <laughs> yes. There, there was a you know a little coup de theatre that we did on stage. It was a, it was from the earliest days we used to do it on stage. And and I realized, well, it was the outhouse. It was absolutely the outhouse, you know. And then when we did the last tour um three or four years ago, we did a sort of souped-up version that was still the outhouse. So I thought, <laughs> it's remarkable, isn't it? There I was, frozen. I mean, I, you know, I've probably got the joke shop to thank for my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This simple joke that works every time. There's something magical about it, though. It was the combination of, of the absolute, you know, vulgarity of what's inside and it, the fact it's really rather beautifully made and, you know, it's got this mm. clever mechanism. It was that marriage. And he looks so innocent, doesn't he? Yes. He just turns around with an innocent look on his face and then wheezes all over you. Yes. Brilliant. I'm glad you did go to see the Doctor Who exhibition eventually. But... Yes, and, and went back many times and, uh, you know, just about managed the Daleks the second time. That was another magical place, Doctor. You know, Doctor Who. Doctor Who figured for so many of us, so many of my yeah. peers. You know, it's not extraordinary that one program can do that, can kind of motivate and and stimulate a whole generation of amazing creative artists. And it really has, hasn't it? Yeah. If you look at Stephen Moffat. You look at Mark. You look at Ross Davis, obviously, and and mm-hmm. then all the other writers. It's extraordinary. And sort of even as it's celebrated, that aspect of it unsung. I think, yeah, what that show unlocked for generations of kids. Do you think it's because it's the first thing that really frightened people? Yes, I think. I think definitely people had set out to frighten kids to entertain them quite in that way before. In fact, Nigel Neal, the grown-up TV science fiction writer who did Quatermass, among many other things, he didn't like Doctor Who. He called it frightening the teenies or frightening the little ones, yes. He thought it, that it was a bad thing to do. Uh-huh. But uh, I don't think it was. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know? No, I think the thrill of being frightened. My son showed me a video the other day that he'd taken from the top of my stairs. He'd obviously heard me playing with his baby son. So his son is now seven, but I think he must have been two And it's basically him coming in with a pair of tongs and he's chasing me with his tongs. And I keep going from room to room and then running across the bottom of the stairs going, oh, no, a monster. (laughs) Because he he comes in, he says, look, Grandad, a monster. And he shows me the tongs. And I then react as if it's a real monster going to bite me. And I run across to the other room and sit going, oh, I've escaped. Thank goodness for that. Then he goes, a monster, a monster. And I run back again. And we did this for hours and hours and hours. And they're getting an enormous thrill from scaring me. Yeah, so, and it's an unusual power inversion, isn't it? Mm. That's a lovely thing, isn't it? It's lovely to be able to do that. Mm. It's a great thing about very tiny children, I think, is that you can send them off into a world of extraordinary imagination very, very simply and very quickly. Yeah. You just say something is true, and if they like the idea of it, they'll go with it. 
Yeah. If you talk about all those people who've come through from Doctor Who, watching it as children and becoming obsessed with it, in a way what they've retained is that sense of imagination. Yeah, and wonder. The wonder of it, yeah. That's right. And then passing it on to a whole other generation of kids, you know, on it goes. Yeah. I mean, one of the great pleasures now, of course, is I get to watch Doctor Who with um, my daughters. I'm watching with my younger younger daughter at the moment. We start in the beginning of lockdown with Christopher Eccleston. Right. And uh, we're nearly at the end of Peter Capaldi now. So, <laughs> you know, and that's been it's such a such a gift. That's the other thing is you realise the value of a programme that adults and children can genuinely enjoy together. What a wonderful gift that is to put out there and how special those shows are. It's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take the outhouse then and put it into the time capsule. Outhouse number one. Outhouse is number one and that goes in there. He'll have to hold himself until somebody else opens the door. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you wondered if there was another... uh, No, I'm not even going to go there, actually. I was going to say, another version of the outhouse, but we won't. We'll we'll go on to item number two. Yes. Now, now, item number two is is one I don't have in my office, and I wish I did. You'll have to find this for me. Mm -hmm. So, But we're staying in the world of comedy. So, you know, I think I'd always loved comedy on TV. And so, you know, the joke shops were definitely overlapped with, you know, an early love of, of TV comedy, which mm. would have started banging the mainstream with being fortunate to be in that golden age of Morecambe and Wise and all great sitcoms. And, you know, and even at the time, Benny Hill, because I, I loved Benny Hill because I thought he was yes. cause so creative, you know, mm. wonderfully creative in terms of how he used television. And then as I got older and that opened out into, well, it was Monty Python was for me. Um, like uh, other people, I heard David Quantic saying the same thing, uh, mm. that it wasn't through the TV show as all the, the spin-offs. Yeah. Because the books, which were just beautiful objects and the records, uh, and of course the records were brilliantly curated, so it was all the best stuff. But that was my introduction. So, And, you know, and you would, you'd internalise it, just play it over and over again. And and then at school, I quickly found the people that shared those enthusiasms and passions. Mm. So my great friend, Steve Cook, who I shared kind of identical comedic tastes, and my other great friend, Simon Nicholson. And we were, we'd all been at the school from, you know, being uh, eight years old together. So we, that was a thing that we'd shared from quite early on. And then when we got into sixth form, what had happened was the English teacher... We went to quite a stuffy boys' school in Leeds. And the English teacher had done a, a sort of one-off magazine runoff on the photocopier called mm. A4 that was you'd submitted poems and essays to. It was she, she was trying to start a, um, a literary magazine. Mm. Well, we didn't submit anything to A4, but what we did, and it was, as I remember it, it was Simon's idea. Eddie Levitin was involved as well, another part of this group. <laughs> but it wasn't me, it was one of them, probably Simon, had the idea, well, let's do our own, called A3. <laughs> Great. You know, and it was kind of somewhere between a Python book and Private Eye, you know, doing parodies of things and gossip. And the first edition was, it wasn't tame, it was funny, but it played it quite safe. And Simon typed it and Steve typed bits Everybody submitted a bit, you know, and then it was photocopied. I think, I think it was either it might have been in my dad's office. My dad uh, was an accountant, and there was a photocopier in his office. Mm. Anyway, and we started selling it from the um, school tuck shop, which sounds like we were at school in uh, 1910, but uh, <laughs> it wasn't. This was in the mid 1980s. But then the second edition, we pushed a bit, you know, because we were a bit rebellious. Not uncommon for boys of that age. Mm. And it started selling a lot of copies. And the third edition, we punned in the title. So so by the time we got to the third edition, it was called Gay 3. And my friend Steve was gay. So this was, there was nothing homophobic in it, quite the reverse. But why it was called Gay 3 is because there was some scurrilous rumours about the rugby team who presented as, as being very alpha mm. and heterosexual. But the rumours were that there were homoerotic incidents and games that belied how they presented to the world at large (laughs) and there was a feature in this addition to that effect anyway this thing went like the hottest of hot cakes we couldn't keep up with demand and there was a chain of events that ended with as many copies as possible being gathered up and burnt ceremonially by the head of sixth form 
And I believe the then captain of the rugby team on the school plane. <laughs> oh, my word. It was quite an achievement. Yeah, to offend somebody that much is really good. Well, fun, and also, you know, they were they were our enemies, the rugby team. Yeah. It was everything we loathed because we were the the opposite of the rugby team. Well, in a way, you've achieved what you want to rile them that yeah, much. Oh, yes, that's what we felt definitely. Yeah. And and there's one memory I have, one creative memory of of contributing to which I, one of the issues, one of my things, which was um, a very carefully done. Do you remember the, the Observer magazine on a Sunday, the colour supplement, as they used to call it? had a puzzle page towards the back that would have a bridge problem, um, a stamp mm-hmm. collecting bit. <laughs> Chess moves. Uh, yes. Yeah, and a, and a cryptic crossword. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I and I did a parody of that that I spent quite a long time on doing it quite meticulously. Mm. And But I don't remember expending it. There was no sense of any, expending any effort. It was purely a fascinating thing to do and that I just really enjoyed. And I can still remember I'd taken a real, whatever the real stamp from that week's Observer was, which was a picture of Laika, the space dog, I think. And it must have been a Russian stamp. And um, But I changed that. This stamp has a picture of a doggy on it. The doggy's tongue is hanging out. That's what I would do if I was a doggy. Let my tongue hang out and lick stamps all day. <laughs> it was something like that. Yeah. And there was a teacher, I won't name him, who never praised me for anything in my, the entirety of my school career. But the one thing, I, I, I got it secondhand from somebody else that he said it was the funniest thing he'd ever seen and he cried with laughter when he read it. And that's always <laughs> stayed with me as one of my best notices, I think, for any piece of work that I've done. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I cherish that memory and the thing of doing that with your friends. Uh, one of the great pleasures is that I'm still friends with, you know, Simon is a dear friend and I still see him and, mm. and Eddie as well. And that's a lovely thing to have that continuity through your life and also to sort of, well, it was, I, could, I think that was my first experience of kind of writing prose comedy and publishing it after a fashion, you know, and seeing it, seeing it have an impact on the world. And also that experience that, in a way, you've kept up right the way through, which is finding a friend who agrees with you. I think this is funny as well. And just sticking to it and just saying, well, we think this is funny. And then you put it out there and then you find, as with your little A3 book of... Uh, of scurrilous filth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> scurrilous filth and terrible <laughs> lies about the rugby team. That, in fact, there's a horde of people who go, oh, no, I think this is funny as well. I mean, that's the experience that goes right the way through. League of Gentlemen. I mean, I know people who were involved at the beginning and I know that a very good friend of mine, he always says that he made a massive mistake with League of Gentlemen because he kept insisting that it wasn't right that the cast played all the parts. He said, oh, you can't play the women. Yes, I re- we remember that. We still we still reference that ah. amongst the four of us as well. Um, yes. Yes, yes. And he later, absolutely openly, when people said to him, oh, you're one of the best, you're brilliant at it, he said, no, I'll give you a fine example of where I was completely wrong completely wrong. I didn't know what I was talking about. And that's what he always cited. Well, that's that's nice. That's another nice notice about the teacher who liked the stamp collecting dog. But that is absolutely one of those things that could so easily have, have just been a joke sort of amongst you and a few other people. Well, that was how it started, the league. Mm. You know, it, it did start as a joke between... I mean, in terms of when we, when we start... I mean, the first thing I wrote with Mark was very much in the spirit of a3 magazine in that we just did it to entertain ourselves and it was a parody of um sort of all perry and croft sitcoms rolled into one <laughs> and or jeremy lloyd as well and yeah. it, was, it was called bedlam and it was set in a a, a mental asylum in the 1950s <laughs> and, and it was kind of written for cast with simon cadell as the cruel asylum boss and uh, <laughs> And, you know, we just took little bits and vignettes from that we remembered from Heidi High. And Come on, Mr Johnson, I know you're not Hitler, come on. <laughs> yeah, it was all of that. <laughs> um, but pushed to the nth degree. But we weren't writing it with the, the idea of showing it to anyone. It was just to entertain each other. I mean, Mark was just coming out of Bretton Hall then. He, just, he was just finishing. Mm. Um, it was the end, towards the end of his last year, and I was likewise just finishing at Leeds University. But it was just a fun thing. And then the next thing we wrote together started as a fun thing. And then I can't remember whether it was him or whether it was me said, well, why don't we, should we send it out and see what happens? Mm. And um, got very little interest apart from 
God Love Him from Charlie Hickson. Uh, I was working at Waterstones at the time in Leeds, the bookshop, and I uh, used to do, had lots of good author events. And I always used to make it my business to muscle in on those author events. And I, it took a lot of courage because I'm not, I'm not a sort of networky person. So I don't, it doesn't come easily to me to sort of schmooze and mm. what have you, but I thought I'm going to, no, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to give him this script. And I really made myself. And then look, thankfully he was a lovely, lovely man, Charlie. Yeah. And he is a lovely, lovely man. And um, he was unbelievably generous and read it and then wrote back to us and said, um, we could write and we could write funny. It's funny how these things stick in your mind. Um, (laughs) It was such a lovely, generous thing for him to do. And it was, you know, at the time, it was like a little stick of dynamite going off because it was like you couldn't believe, you know, Charlie was somebody who had a profile of that and mm. uh, so we couldn't believe it and then he was working on a new sketch show and he asked if we'd like to submit some sketches and that, that sketch show was the fast show and we we sat down me and mark and wrote a clutch of sketches and sent them off and we're still waiting to hear <laughs> <laughs> i hope it says you can write and you can write funny but you can't write for me <laughs> of course i've seen charlie many times me and mark did write for him on um randall and hopkirk series so mm. uh, well of course he's got that great uh, well that sense that you have which is that thing where it's all right to be out there, as it were, to go into different areas that seem absurd. He likes the surreal and he likes the the science fiction side of things as well. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, he's got that thing, again, like many other people I know, where he can wear more more than one hat because because he's Mm. a serious novelist as well. um, Oh, absolutely. And a producer. And a producer, yeah, yeah. Mm. But, you know, very, very talented man. What I really like about it is you've both got that ability to write something that really, if you analyse it, shouldn't be funny. It just shouldn't be funny. Really dark things, really quite menacing and, and frightening things. But that was the thing we we sort of knew instinctively, that there was such an overlap between the macabre and the disturbing and the funny. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we had so many strange things in common, the four of us in the, in the league, um, that didn't make sense that because they were so particular. So we all were very familiar with the film Ten Rillings in Place, the mm. brilliant dramatization of the christy oh, christy done it yeah christy, christy, christy done it terrifying yeah a brilliant film richard fleischer director mm. amazing performances but whether it's intentional or unintentional i don't know but has a comic thread a, the blackest of blackly comic threads all the way through it and i mm. i sort of felt that the first time i saw it you know when i was probably about 13 or something, yeah. partly to do with Richard Attenborough's performance, but um, also the moments you just said it, Christina. I mean, it, yeah. where is there a joke in that? And yet, unless it's just cathartic, we found ourselves laughing. And yet when we all came together, we discovered that we we all had come to that conclusion because we would cry with laughter at some of those lines. And we'd all kind of felt that independently and then somehow bumped into each other and and found that we had those kind of odd things in common. Well, you definitely find, don't you, if something really makes you jump and really frightens you, but then turns out to be something that's not frightening, absolutely everybody will laugh at that moment. And so out of horror and fear, laughter is the next reaction always. Yeah, and we, me and Andy worked that out. I mean, we always knew that sort of instinctively, but when we were doing ghost stories as the play in its first incarnation, we knew that when we were getting those jumps that it was very similar to getting a laugh. It was a visceral reaction. It was a kind of a, it was a felt reaction. It was not a cerebral thing. It was, mm-hmm. uh, and and it was a, everything to do with timing. You yeah. know, you, you had to get the timing absolutely dead on to get the reaction that you wanted. And, you know, it was a very fiddly thing. And that was, yeah, it was just like comedy. Well, marvellous. I look forward to reading A3. <laughs> well, yeah, now, here's the sad thing is nobody's got a copy. That's nobody's got it. without Unless well, Steve Cook's got them, and I haven't seen Steve for a few years. <laughs> he may have some copies. I reckon that there's a member of the rugby team from <laughs> Who didn't Leeds Grammar School. <laughs> Stop it, because or... we'll get sued. <laughs> <laughs> I never said Leeds Grammar School. How did you I... say Leeds Grammar School? I was very careful and said, I'm stuffy boys. <laughs> because I did that strange thing of looking at, at a Wikipedia in order to see if there was anything that I'd missed that I didn't know about your career. It made me laugh that Leeds Grammar School is now called the Grammar School of Leeds. 
And you sort of go, well, what's the point of that? It moved sites. It moved from where we went, which was its dusty old Victorian incarnation. Right. It reincarnated out about five miles out of Leeds city centre in, ah. in one of the posh suburbs. So they thought they'd fool everybody into thinking it was a different school. By, Maybe. It was, probably, it was rebranding. By reversing the words. Rebranding, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yes. All right, then. Well, at that unspecified school, <laughs> there's definitely a, one of those lads still got a copy under his bed, and we'll find it, and it goes into the time capsule as your second item. <laughs> Lovely. OK, Jeremy, let's move on to number three. OK, for those of you who don't get ad-free podcasts, here are those adverts. We'll be back straight afterwards. See you soon. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, let's get back to the writer, script editor, director, and all-round lovely chap, Jeremy Dyson, and find out what else he's going to choose for his time capsule. All right, well, we're staying with the League of Gentlemen. In fact, we're now reprising two things because it's League of Gentlemen and Blackpool again. Ah. So this is, um, I think this was the first tour. It was either the first tour or the second tour, but I think it was the first tour, which was after the uh, second series had gone out. And it was one of those things. It was such a joy because we started live. The earliest performances were the Canal Cafe Theatre tiny little pub theatre in Maida Vale. Mm. And it was Steve Pemberton's brilliant idea to sort of block book Monday nights so that we could sort of generate lots of material because we couldn't go on in amongst stand-ups because no. we had to drop the fourth wall down. We discovered that very early on that everything died when you tried to do that. So we th- Steve said, well, we just have to do our own nights and people can come and see us. And, it, you know, and it worked. God love it. Um, I mean, he'd, he'd already had that experience of running a, a theatre company, which is how we all came together as a group in the first place. So, yeah, but we, we, you know, we were born live and loved the thrill of those live shows. And a lot of that material that went into the first series, some of those set piece sketches had been sort of these little moments of theatre, but coup de theatre, as I mm. said earlier, and like... Like when Pauline smacks Ross around the face with a clipboard. <laughs> Stephen Reese were brilliant at, at, at because it got such theatrical sensibilities that they're kind of mm. doing those moments. And then, uh, you know, and then so you start copying each other, you know, you learn off each other. So I thought, oh, well, so I guess that's where my pissing in the glass came from. It was a sort of my attempt to do a similar thing on stage and encouraged by Steve, I have to say. So, you know, that was that was our roots. And we loved that thrill of doing that in front of an audience and then went to Edinburgh and did it live, which is where we got noticed. But then once we started on the radio and the TV path, then you were you were away from doing that theatrical side, mm. uh, apart from getting an audience into the recordings of the first series. So we hadn't done it for a while. We did some material just before we did the first series. At, we did a little run at the Gatehouse Theatre, which was a bigger pub theatre in Highgate. Mm. Um, but that, that had been it. So then when we did that first tour, we didn't know quite how it was going to go. Um, you know, ticket sales were quite good. 
But until you went out on that first night, you didn't know how, what it was. You literally had no idea. What it, you didn't yeah. know who the audience was going to be. You know, and we were, we were kind of pretty much pre-internet. It was still the dawn of the internet. So it wasn't like we were in that realm of Googling ourselves or anything like that. So it was really quite an unknown quantity that who that audience was that had watched that first series. And how many of them would turn up? Are these people coming fresh? Yeah, and, and who are they? You know, what is your constituency? Mm. You know, who are they students? Um, are they older people? What is it? And so the first of those dates was in Bristol, at the Colston Hall, as it was then. And I can remember on that first night, it was a sellout, standing in the foyer with Paul Roberts, our lovely, lovely promoter. And we stood there watching this audience come in. And Paul said to me, who are these people? Who are these people? Because you couldn't pin them down. No. Because... There was students and there was young people, but there there were older people. There were people in the sixties. There were families. Mm. There were you just there was no there was no discernible common denominator other than they all obviously liked the show, mm. and that was what that tour was like. It was such an amazing thing. And then so then the thrill of that, I think whatever the first sketch was, the three of them coming on in their dinner jackets, which is how yeah. we did the first half of the tour i think it was football theater was the sketch <laughs> the sketch that we did it was it was a very old one but just the roar when they came on i mean i, I mean it, you know it sounds kind of banal but it wasn't because the last experience of being on a stage we'd had was in front of 60 people at the gatehouse theater a couple of yeah. years before and and suddenly you were in front of whatever it was two or three thousand and um if, or, you know, well, more 1,500, I don't know, but it was a lot for us. You know, it was a lot more than 60 people at the Gay House Theatre. Yeah. And it was it was a, a shock and, of course, a, a, an enormous thrill and a, a, a highly emotional moment. Oh, I, I can imagine. To, uh, well, just the slow realisation, and I suppose it was slow, that, oh, my God, I've written some comedy that seems to be universal. Yeah, that it had an it had that appeal. And I would none of us ever thought that. We never mm. thought that we again, it, it's easy to sort of go numb to it or take it for granted, I guess, when you've been doing it for a number of years. But um at the time our only ambition was to have a, a TV show, something that would go on BBC two, you know, in that slot. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we ever really thought about having more than one series, because that in itself seemed like the impossible holy grail, you know. And we certainly didn't think about it having any level of popularity because we thought it was too niche. So I, I think we didn't talk about it, but I think we we just assumed that it would be a niche late night thing that would appeal to people like us. But, yes. that, but we knew that that was a niche audience, you know, it wasn't. <laughs> so that when you were on that tour, when you were suddenly in venues that were not niche and playing to a strange version of a mainstream audience... It was so far from any of our expectations that we definitely spent most of that tour pinching ourselves. It was a joy to be in the audience and see that. You could really sense that with the performers, that in fact they were not blasé about it at all. You could see the thrill of it. Uh, I have to say that I went to see it a number of times because I just thought it was the most extraordinarily beautiful show. As a family, we watched it every moment of it, oh. every single moment and every repeat of it. And we watched it, my wife and I and our teenage children. So there's an example of the universality of it. We roared with laughter, just couldn't believe the nerve of it. I mean, I have to say, it's, I think, <laughs> personally, I think it may well be the greatest comedy show ever made, well, in my opinion. We can't I, honestly, like that. I honestly believe that. Uh, my wife did once stop the show. Uh, I can tell you the date. In fact, 31st of October, it was her birthday in Tunbridge Wells. And we'd seen it at Drury Lane and then we saw it in Tunbridge Wells on, on tour. And the moment before Pam says, Scoosebees, <laughs> as Briggs came on as her to do that line, my wife laughed so much that he was unable to do the line. <laughs> and eventually turned and said, look, if you don't shut up, I can't say it. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Isn't it? Yeah, what a lovely, lovely thing. So, yeah, well, and we, you know, and we still feel surprised by it. And we still feel surprised. The thing you said, the nerve of it. I mean, the, the naughtiness of it. You know, we mm. still 
uh, we still will there will be there particular moments where did we do that? Were we, allow, <laughs> were we allowed to do that? Um, yeah, well, you know, it was an unbelievable ride. Mm. But to get to my object, yes. <laughs> so of course, I, I am the one who doesn't perform. I'm, I'm I am a writer, whereas they are writer performers. So I'm not on stage with them. So I, I, I probably went out for the first week or two of the tour, and you know, to check everything was all right. And then I would come and visit them you know, probably once a week on average. But then it went into the second leg in the following year. And I'd probably stopped going once a week. You know, even I had perhaps tired of it or I was doing other things. And there'd been a gap of about three weeks, I think. And it was the last two shows of the tour. And it was in Blackpool, at Blackpool Winter Gardens. And I arrived and Mark ran up to me and grabbed me. He said, I think we've gone mad. And he wasn't joking. There was this kind of gravity to him. I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, we're hearing things when we're on stage. Said, what do you mean? He said, well, it started as a joke that one night we were on stage and in, in the middle, it was in Go Johnny, Go, 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 Go. <laughs> Somebody heard. And Reese had said it was a giant pigeon called the Bubble Angel. I might be slightly misremembering that, but I definitely remember the words bubble angel. <laughs> and they got themselves in a place where they thought the bubble angel was real and it was coming down on... Because, you know, they didn't, this was like 100 dates. They did 100 dates. Mm. So, you know, it was that craziness of being locked together in a tour bus. Yeah. They'd actually broken the sketch on the previous night. Did you hear it? <laughs> Come out of character. Because <laughs> the bubble angel was on stage. And I was, I was grateful it was the last two dates of the tour. But anyway, the highlight was, on top of that, we were given the keys to the Pleasure Beach. We were presented officially the key, like you're given the keys to the city. We were given the official keys to the Pleasure Beach, which is something that visiting comedians, presumably if you had played however many nights at the Winter Gardens. Wow. That meant you could just go in and go on any ride, go straight to the front and go on any ride. Oh. So we went round numerous rides, and one of them is the log flume, which was my favourite, which sadly is no longer there. And when you got to the end, when you came down the splash, there's the automatic machine that took a photo. Yes. Did you buy it for an exorbitant price 20 minutes later? And, um, <laughs> and I bought it, and I have that photo, and I keep it in my office. It's one of my favourite things. It's the four of us together. Uh. On that log flume, looks of kind of joy and disbelief and, you know, shock as we hit this splash. And that is the league in one photo for me because it was, that's what it was for us. It was the most unbelievable ride. Mm. So, yes, I've got it behind me in the office. Uh, well, it normally, is. oh, well, I don't know where it's gone. I don't think it slipped down the side of the sofa. Um, I'll see if I can dig it out later to show you because it's, it's such a lovely mm. photo. So, yes, that is item number three. What a fantastic thing. To have the whole experience in your mind summed up in one photograph. In one image, yeah. How beautiful. Four friends. You should be very proud of it and what a great thing to have done in your life. Yeah, no question. No question. We just, we, and we know that. And, you know, when we came back together to do the specials a few years ago, having you know been away from it for mm. 15, 16 years, whatever it was, we absolutely knew that. And then when we did the tour on the back of it, you know, just what a blessing it was. Yeah. Well, I'm honoured to be the custodian of that picture and put it in the time capsule for you. Thank you. OK, that's number three. Let's move on to the fourth item. All right. So this is this isn't work related. This is because the, the, the first three have all, all been comedy related. But this is um, mm. so this is my dad, my dear dad, who passed away um, last year. He's the sweetest, loveliest, kindest man. But he was a very serious man. It was an interesting blend because he, he, he loved comedy. And in fact, so one of my, my introductions to watching comedy would have been sitting on his knee watching Morecambe and Wise and, and the live of the birds and what have you. But he was a very serious man. And he was an accountant. Uh, he took his profession very seriously, he took his professionalism very seriously, very diligent and conscientious, but had this sense of humour. And the two, they weren't at odds with one another. They were just, it was just an unusual contrast. They had these contrasting sides to his personality. Mm. 
And uh, he had his own little accountancy practice. And over the years, it sort of got taken over or incorporated into sort of bigger practices. And then towards the sort of latter part of his career, it got taken into a, a big corporate practice, you know, one of those that has branches everywhere. Mm. And this was a new experience for him. And he was quite suspicious of it because he was, you know, he liked the status quo. And this would have been in the 90s. So it was the sort of flowering of sort of motivational speaking and, you know, corporate culture was full of that thing. Mm. And he got taken on a, um, he, he was forced to do one of those, uh, one of those courses, a seven, <laughs> the seven habits of highly effective people that I can remember. <laughs> and he was so suspicious and resentful of the mm. fact that, that, you know, cause there he was, uh, in his late fifties, I guess. Yes. Are you suggesting I don't know how to do this job? Yeah. yeah. And I was living in London by then. And, um, you know, and when I would come up to visit, he'd come and pick me up from the station. And he came to pick me up and he'd just come back off this course. And he was absolutely gushing about it. It turned out he thought it was fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, he said that he'd got so much out of it. And he, again, such humility. He said, to, he said, you know, he said that there's lots of things I learned. To, you know, and that they made you look back on your life. And I came to all kinds of conclusions. There's lots of things I think I see now I would have done differently. And I said, well, what, like, what? What would you have done differently? And he said, well, I'd have spent more time with you kids for a start. Uh. And it was such a, a shock's not the right word, but it, it was, you know, it was like I, not expecting that to come out of his mouth um, because he didn't speak about his feelings a lot. And 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 I, and I don't, always thought of him as, as an attentive father. He did spend time with it. I mean, he wasn't a, wasn't like a sportsman who we didn't go fishing together or anything like that, but, you know, he, he did. He did spend time with us and he knew who we all were. But nevertheless, to hear that made such an impact on me. And it's something that I then, of course, took into my own life as a parent as like an absolute dictum. Mm. It was like a gift he'd given me of the most important information any father can have. Don't get to the position where you're thinking that. Is that what led you to move away from London? Yes, I think it was. Ah. I mean, it was a number of things. But I think, I think looking back on it now, having been away for 15 years, absolutely, I think that seeing that yeah the family life has been I, I am what 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 would have once been called a family man yes absolutely so anyway also part of this corporate thing was um they they did a secret santa now <laughs> never in his career would he have ever had anything like a secret santa you know uh, uh, where you buy gifts for one another and so one christmas it would have been christmas 1996 he was given in his secret Santa by one of the young younger women in the, in the practice, probably one of the secretarial staff, an animal-shaped hot water bottle from Boots <laughs> called Harry the Hound. And he didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so partly because my mum had an electric blanket, I think. But, uh, <laughs> so he said, uh, he gave it to me, he said, quite ceremonially, he said, do you want this? And I, I was living in a, a little flat in Highbury at the time that didn't have much heating. So I, I took Harry the Hound quite gratefully. And I still have Harry the Hound. And Harry the Hound has been joined in my family over the years by three other animal-shaped hot water bottles that all have names. You know, this kind of hybrid of Teddy. They don't do them anymore, but there was a period, I think, from the probably from the mid-90s. You got them from Boots. So, yeah, we, 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 so we now have one each in our family. And uh, if it's very cold, as it sometimes gets up here uh, on Ilkley Moor, we say it's a four-dog night <laughs> and all the hot water dogs come out. So Harry the Hound is a lovely thing that connects me to my own father. And that moment when he made that confession to me, and I've then taken into my own family. So, yeah, it's a lovely, a lovely item. So, in fact, my little impression of your dad, you know, are you telling me I don't know my job, <laughs> was completely the opposite of what it turned out to be. In fact, he was a man who just went in and said, oh, so I don't know my job as well as I thought well, I did. Well, that was a, He had such humility. That does show enormous humility. He I didn't think. see his own virtues. You know, if you, would, if you were to say any of that to him, he wouldn't. He just kind of look at you, you know. But in the same way, he always used to joke about himself not being an intellectual because he hadn't gone to university. He'd trained as an accountant with Coleman's mm. mustard and gone straight into accountancy. And I think many of his friends had, you know, had been to university. And so he always felt that he wasn't like them. He, he didn't have that, as he said, intellectual side. And yet he was the most cultured man 
I know he loved classical music with an absolute passion, you know, was devoted to, to Beethoven, to Bach, to Mozart, knew everything intimately, opera, theatre, you know, him and my mum were never out of the theatre. And yet uh, he was probably, yeah, he was, he was, I mean, Melvin Bragg probably been to the theatre less than my dad, you know, and, <laughs> and yet he wouldn't see it about himself. He didn't see that, you know, no. it's just something that he liked. Yes. There was something that I think I read in a, a Stephen Fry newspaper magazine a long time ago, which was that anybody who thinks they should run something is the last person who should be allowed to do it. <laughs> yes. So your dad is exactly the sort of person that should have been in charge of things yes. because he would have said, so what does everybody else think? And that's a thing that's just so missing from from everything, I think, at the moment. Yeah, and one of the... Um, that I've started directing later in my career, one of the lessons I learned was to try and say very little and to just get out of the way, you know, to try and make an environment be it on set on stage where everyone's excited enthusiastic and relaxed mm -hmm. and having fun but then let them get on with it because you know they know much more than i'll ever know and just you know and just kind of nudging and enthusing where appropriate um yes but all the best writers i've ever worked with do exactly that leave it to the actor to work something out and only when they're really stuck they step in and say i, I, I meant the emphasis to be on that word actually and that's just about all it needs. And you go, oh, of course, I see, no, yeah. It doesn't take a lot of explaining, I think. Well-written comedy is fairly obvious. And in fact, quite often all you need to do is say it. Yes, and understand why it's funny, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or have an instinct as to why it's funny. Yeah. It might not be an intellectual understanding, but obviously. No, I would agree, yeah. And, I, you know, mm. I got such a training working so closely with three. I mean, like, you know, the chances of rocking up with three of the just most brilliant comic actors that you could imagine, yes. just bumping into them. <laughs> and let me add, they were that from the get-go. There was no, there's been no, I mean, of course they've developed across their careers, but they were stars from the very first thing I saw them do. Do you know, I always missed on the television show the lovely sketch about the tiny man in the shop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hang on a minute, I've just gone up here. Hang on. Oh, isn't that terrible? It's so long, I can't remember his name. It's not Mr Chinnery, Mr Chinnery is the vet. It's Mr... Yeah. What's he called, the little fella? I can't remember. Reese did it. Can you lift me up? It was like an Itmar joke. It was, yeah. You know, it was a proper radio joke, yeah. <laughs> yes, so if anybody's not heard the radio series, that's worth going oh, back yeah, and listening yeah, yeah, to. Oh, yeah, yeah, And that was so much fun to do because that was in the glorious radio theatre at Broadcasting House. And again, we were all students of comedy, so going in and stepping onto that into that space with that awareness mm. of, and particularly, you know, because we were we were pretty green then. We were, we'd only been doing it for three or four years. And yeah. That was a huge thrill. Fantastic. Okay, well, I'm going to put Harry the Hound Very good. into the time capsule. We'll miss him, mate. You <laughs> will miss him, especially up there in Ilkley. Yes. Okay, Jeremy, we've got one more thing to put in. This is something you want to get rid of from your life. Well, I bet I'm not the only one of your interviewees to have put this in. It's my school report book from that, <laughs> that unnamed institution, dusty institution. <laughs> so, you know, every Christmas, every Easter, every summer, judgment was passed in mm. this hardback book. Um, they had their own that they printed. Again, it was like 1910. That my mum had kind of backed in brown paper. It was pre-printed pages, and they would write in all the subjects. Mm -hmm. And there's a little plus for good, a dot for satis or satisfactory, and a, a dreaded minus for, you know. There was that, and there was also your ranking in the form because you did exams at the end of at each term, and, and then there was a ranking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it would, this thing being handed over, because of course it, it was taken so seriously, it was the ultimate document in judgment on you. Yes. It was handed over with dread. And, you know, some of the casual comments I can still remember to this day, of course, they're engraved in your heart. The most chilling one to me is he needs to learn that superficial happiness is no substitute for real achievement. <laughs> oh, my word. And I think I was nine. <laughs> Oh, my word, how brutal. You know, and that was the institution. It was, you know, I'm sure mo yeah. many boys' grammar schools still, even in the 1970s and early 80s, were, were, would have been like that. And the thing I've come to realise, in recent years, I've got involved with a, a wonderful organisation called Grimm & Co, who um, promote literacy in kids, and mm. um, based in Rotherham. 
And uh, it's all based around imagination and we're just moving premises. But the original premise is a shop, uh, a magical apothecary for, for magical creatures done to a beautiful standard. Not unlike going in the old joke shop on the North Pier. Mm-hmm. That was very much what I wanted to bring to it Was when, when I got involved, was it had some of that magic to it. And it's all about creating an environment for kids who struggle with conventional literacy and education that ups the creativity. And this is no disparaging of contemporary education, which has come on a long way since the 1970s. I'm well aware of that. My sister is is a brilliant teacher. And so I know that it's not like it used to be for kids. But nevertheless, when you take this approach with with kids who, who struggle to fit in, it has the most amazing results. So, yeah, that my school of book is the complete opposite of that spirit. And of course, the complete opposite of everything <laughs> that my career has been based on, you know. Um, yes. My dad always said I was being unfair when I said that. And maybe I was, you know. But um, that was my experience of it, was that... Um, mm. But it's strange, isn't it? Because, in fact, here you are, you're number 29 in the class, Jeremy. You should be ashamed of yourself. But if you'd <laughs> argued, yes, but only 150 of us got to this school from all the kids in Leeds, and we are the elite. So, in fact, I'm 29th out of 15,000. But the positive was never played, you know, was never emphasised. But it, no. I, I will say it did give me a certain satisfaction that I did go to the new site and there was a book and it, it had it did the alma mater, you know, it did the successful old boys. And I was there as one of the successful old boys. So, you know, mm. it was in spite of the school reports. Well, of course, the sad thing is that they would be writing that. All of those teachers would have sat down and carefully written those things, believing that they were going to motivate you to do better. Absolutely. They were just they were just kind of locked into the orthodoxy of, of their day. And that was the orthodoxy mm. of their day. And I, and I still think that even given how far things have come on educationally, which they undoubtedly have, that, you know, looked at from a broader perspective, we're probably still in the Middle Ages in terms of how we educate kids. And that if you got to the point where it could be built around interest and fascination and creativity, I know that what that can unlock. Now, of course, that's a very, very difficult thing to do in regiment. And, and so one understands why that's not the case. And I'm not stupid or naive about it. Um, well, but it's ironic, isn't it, that I've talked about this with a number of people. We do generally, if you talk to people, nearly everyone agrees that actually just sitting kids in a line and teaching them things is, is not the way to go. It doesn't suit everybody. Well, also kids develop at such different rates. And mm. So, you know, in any one class, you can have some kids who are really struggling with literacy and you know, kids who are reading adult novels and, uh, yeah. you know, they all tend to catch up with each other in the end, but they just develop at different rates. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's that f- astonishing fact that's in that Ken Robinson book or that Ken Robinson lecture that our school system is still based around Victorian mills and factories. Yes. Because that's what they were designed for. It was designed to ready people to go into into working in the mill and in the factory. So hence the school bell and hence the organising. He said it goes, Ken Robinson said, it goes against everything that, that, that is now known about educational development to group kids by year. That's been known for about 40 years, but it, it persists because it's it's very hard to change. You know? mm. but of course, so the other thing that might be pointed out is that I started with, on my second item, it was an A3 magazine, which was born out of my school friends. And you were given the freedom to do that. Indeed. And, uh, you know, so let's be fair to the old institution. Also, they, they were pretty good on the drama as well. You know, so I did used to appear in, a, in the house plays every year, usually as the leading lady, although I didn't carry on being on stage in my um, in my adult career. At least it gave me that love of the grease paint and the uh, footlight. Mm. See, I'm not putting the school in. No. I'm just putting the school report. That sort of misguided, we've judged you. Yes. And now, come on, prove us wrong. Exactly. You go, no, I can't be asked. <laughs> <laughs> in goes the school report, buried deep inside the time capsule, never to be looked at again. So that's it. That's the end of our chat about things you want to put in. It's been really lovely. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. I'm grateful that you asked me. Did I? Yes, you did. You must have done. No, no, nobody wants to know. You kept badgering me. Come on, admit it. (laughs) Please, when are you going to have me on? (laughs) You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Jeremy Dyson. Do you know what? I'd love to see that photo of the four members of the League of Gentlemen on the log flume at Blackpool Pleasure Beach. I bet it's brilliant. But I have to say that 
Actually, I'm really disappointed with myself that I didn't notice something rather obvious when we were talking about it. I wonder if any of you did. You see, the photo is of the League of Gentlemen on the log flume. The League of Gentlemen, L-O-G, on the log flume. If they ever do another tour, they should put that on a T-shirt. Anyway, if you enjoyed this episode, and it happens to be the first one you've come across, then please do subscribe for all new episodes as they're released. Nearly 200 episodes are already available, so I'm sure there are some that will be of interest to you. Whilst you're doing that, you could also click on five stars to boost our ratings, as that really helps to get the podcast noticed in this highly competitive field. Thanks. You might even write a review. You can follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, where we try to keep you in informed and entertained and are available to answer any questions or listen to any suggestions for future guests thank you and if you're enjoying the theme tune playing in the background and why wouldn't you you can listen to it without me talking over it on spotify anytime you want it was written and performed by pass the peas music this was a cast off production for Acast podcasts and was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to catch that rabbit that keeps eating my cabbages. And it's so unfair there are any seedlings. Anyway, I've devised a foolproof method. I'm going to hide behind a bush and then I'm going to make a sound like a carrot. Irresistible. Bye. <laughs>